tonight, can the U.S. economy weather higher interest rates? You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. Of course, the Federal Reserve announcing last week they hiked the federal funds rate for the first time we've seen in more than three years. Markets were expecting that, kind of yawned. Um, but what they, the interesting thing, I think, coming out of that is where does the Federal Reserve see us going from there? And joining us tonight with some interesting perspective on that, as he always brings to the show, is Andy Stout. He's our chief investment officer at Allworth, managing billions of dollars worth of investments from right here in Cincinnati. Uh, and Andy, of course, the Fed speaking last week, made it very clear uh, that inflation is its top priority, knowing that this first rate hike is probably maybe barely going to make a dent. Well, it's not going to make a dent, Amy, because when the Fed makes these moves, it doesn't really impact the economy until about nine months later. It takes a while for these interest rate increases to actually work their way through the system. Yeah. And if we're thinking that somehow, that somehow if the Fed raises the rates, that's going to make it possible for ships stuck out uh, on sea, unable to get a port, or somehow drive oil prices lower because of a war going on in Ukraine, well... I mean, obviously that won't. So we'd be sorely mistaken if that we were to think that were to happen. So I think kind of the takeaway is, and I think what the Fed is alluding to here is they know inflation is stickier than what they thought because of some new information that have come out or some uh, new uh, things with the war and everything going on right there. So the Fed, they need to fight this inflation. They know that they need to fight the inflation. And some things have happened that were beyond really anybody's control. Well, Andy, I think it's uh, interesting that they waited this long. I mean, they learned their lesson last time they had to raise interest rates a few years ago and uh, when they didn't really um, – they weren't transparent. It kind of surprised Wall Street, and they've been talking about doing this for six, eight months or so. Did they wait too long? Did they talk about it for too long before they actually did something? Well, I think hindsight's twenty twenty on there, and the answer to that is yes, they did wait too long, and Chair Powell even acknowledged as much – Uh, over the past week. And when we think about what the Fed should or should not be doing, I mean, six months ago, really the market was only pricing in one rate hike. But also we have a lot of things that have changed, right? We have this Russia-Ukraine war, which is making inflation worse or uh, you know, more sticky. And if you think about where we were just, you know, a few months ago, inflation was primed to roll over. There was a lot of things working in its favor. And then, you know, this war obviously happened. Now, you know, I think if everyone had known that uh, Russia was going to res- uh, invade Ukraine for no reason at all, then I think uh, people probably would have, you know, positioned a little bit differently on the inflation front. But that was really just kind of out of left field to some degree. Well, and Steve kind of saying, hey, too little, too late. I like your Monday morning quarterbacking there. Uh, yeah, Steve, what I do <laughs> come best. on, guys, where you been? Yeah, exactly. But but truly, um, when, when you look at this, um, there was it was a, un- a unanimous vote except for one person as far as who's voting on where the rates are going to go. That one person coming from the Federal Reserve Bank in St. Louis, and he said, hey, I think a, a quarter of a percent hike right now is too little, too late. He was calling for a half a percent hike. Do you think that, first of all, maybe that's what was called for? And also, and I'm wondering if you see any now half-point hikes in the near future. Yeah, I think the Fed will have a half-point hike in the future. Was one called for now? Probably. I wouldn't disagree with that. But the Fed was really worried about uh, the uncertainty because the of the Russia-Ukraine yeah. war. Had that war not happened, I'm fairly certain the Fed would have hiked by half of a point yeah. uh, to start with. And if we look at what the Fed is laying the groundwork for right now, they're looking at possibly 
a total of seven quarter point uh, rate hikes this year, where if you throw in a half one in there, I mean, that could be in there as well. Absolutely. And that's actually priced into the market that we do get a half point hike at some point in time. And the reason the Fed has really made this what I call a hawkish shift, uh, which means they're more concerned about inflation than full employment, is because the situation has really gotten a lot worse on the inflation front and the un the employment front appears to be pretty strong. If you look at what the Fed's projections are right now for the upcoming calendar years, they're expecting the unemployment rate to remain at three and a half percent for this year and next year, but they are, they've raised their inflation forecast. What this did was lay the groundwork for the Fed to be as aggressive as they want when it comes to fighting inflation. And that's why they've made it their top priority. Andy, we're used to uh, the Federal Reserve Chairman Powell when he opens up his mouth markets tank. Um, this time that didn't happen. When when he had the press conference after last Wednesday's meeting, he, he made a lot of very positive, very reassuring comments, and markets reacted. We, we had the best week we've had in a long time, and with some of the major indexes up 5.6, NASDAQ even up 8%. Um, were you surprised by his comments, and, and does this mean that we may be pulling out of uh, the stock correction we've been experiencing? Well, to answer the first part of your question, was I surprised by his comments? No, not really. I mean, he has to talk the economy up. I can't imagine him ever coming out and saying, hey, we're going to fall into a recession. Oh, that would we kill markets. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, guys, this yeah. looks really bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what's yeah. going to happen? That'll pretty much guarantee a recession because every business will yeah. pull back their investments, lay people off if the head of our nation's central bank actually comes out and says that. You know, but, you know, he, he was pretty positive on the U.S. economy, and he talked about the labor market being tight to an unhealthy level. Uh, what that means is that, it's a very, very strong labor market, and they believe they can hike rates without affecting employment. Because remember, the Fed has a dual mandate, which is stable inflation, which clearly it's not stable, and full employment. And they believe that we're at full employment and we'll be able to stay there despite whatever the Fed does. And usually, to your point, yeah, Powell sometimes upsets the market with some of the words he says. But whatever he said, the market liked it. I mean, we saw the S&P 500 from the time Powell started talking to the end of the day, rally about two and a half percent. So that was a that's, that's a monster huge. move. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55 KRC as we talk about the Federal Reserve, right? The the huge burden that they have of trying to get inflation down at the same time, not hiking us into a recession. And our chief investment officer, Andy Stout, joining us as he does every Monday. Um, Andy, also on, on top of just what uh, Fed Chair Powell said last week, we also got some economic data in which showed that, hey, actually things aren't bad. Yeah, if we look at the big picture, we had retail sales, which came in. If you look at just the February data, it came in a little bit light than expected. However, the January data was revised massively higher. So when we look at January and February together, we're in a better spot than what economists were thinking we would be in. So we said we had some really good uh, data there. Some inflation data also came in a little bit better. That's like uh, producer prices. Also, import prices came in a little bit lower than what was expected. However, I got to throw a big caveat on that. Uh, this data was before the big jump in oil prices. So, you know, take that one with a grain of salt. Uh, but we also had some good housing numbers, uh, housing starts, building permits, jobless claims were lower. Uh, and, and another thing is uh, industrial production, which is a measure of 
uh, manufacturing, it came in better than expected. So overall, it was a really good week for the economy. When we look at the first quarter collectively, we're probably seeing growth of about one and a half to two percent on an annualized basis. So that's a it's a little bit slower than what a lot of people were thinking. Still a few good numbers. Ago. Yeah. Still good numbers, and we're still expected to be about two and a half percent for the entire year. But it's uh, certainly a lot of uncertainty because of everything going on over in Ukraine. Andy, despite what you're saying, right, about the economic numbers that came out last week aren't bad. Um, Fed Chair Jerome Powell talking, you know, saying some positive things about the economy, right? The market's responding in a positive way. The day after they hiked interest rates, headlines everywhere, um, you know, are we going into a recession? There was someone who had written, we think we'll be in a recession by summer, right? So there's all these headlines that are coming out there as the result of what we already knew was going to happen, but people making these predictions that we're going straight into a recession. And I, you have this great tool that we have at Allworth that kind of prognosticates, right? It looks at a number of things in the economy, different pieces, different moving parts um, that would probably move before the economy did and would and you're saying hey well there's some scary headlines out there what you're seeing may not be so scary at least not yet yeah at least not yet well what we're looking at are leading economic indicators which amy are as you said data that moves before the broad economy does mm-hmm. and right now only one of the 10 that we look at uh, are signaling a slowdown and the one that is signaling a slowdown by the way uh, it's really a combination of inflation and the unemployment rate Basically, when inflation is rising and the unemployment rate is low, uh, that's when you see the Fed raising interest rates. And unfortunately, the Fed has had a history of hiking us into a recession. But when we would get really a little bit more worried is when we have about four or five of these pointing to a slowdown. And we only have one of these leading indicators pointing to a slowdown. There's another one that's really close, uh, just to be fair. And that's the interest rate differential on the two-year government bond and the 10-year government bond. Uh, which is a measure of the yield curve, and the yield curve has flattened a lot, uh, has not quite inverted. It, inversion means the interest rates on the two-year bond or a shorter-term bond are higher than they are in the longer-term bond, which indicates there's more risk in the short-term and heightened uh, re- risk of recession there. So right now, bringing this full circle here, uh, the chance of a recession is low based on leading economic indicators, but I would be remiss if I did not point out there are some possible exogenous events that could cause us to go into recession. An exogenous event is really something outside of the U.S. economy, so an outside shock, if you will. Think back in COVID of 20, uh, in early 2020, right, that the economy just shut down. Leading indicators weren't pointing to a recession at all. But if the government just closes the whole economy down, well, obviously you're going to fall into a recession. There's no question about it. And there could be some ripple effects from the Russia-Ukrainian war that we simply just don't know about yet. But when we look at it as a whole, though, currently recession risk is low, uh, and the potential for the economic fallout from uh, Russia and Ukraine is not yet pointing to a recession. Well, we, we've talked a lot about uh, uh, you know good news from the, the Fed uh, on course. Uh, stock markets rebounded nicely. But if you had any money invested in bonds uh, so far this year, you're not, you're not seeing that. I, I mean, bonds... Uh, have gotten beaten up. Um, the aggregate bond index is down over 5% year to date. Um, what should an investor holding bonds do with at this point? Uh, you know, if they're paying one, one and a half percent interest and you've seen a loss of 5.1, 5.2%, um, how can they make that up? Will they make that up? 
Well, eventually, yes, they will make that up. But a few things to uh, a note about bonds. First off, I do not believe that you should be running for the doors on bonds. You know, we're not market timers for stocks or bonds. Usually that ends up being counterproductive. But three points I want to make regarding bonds in today's environment. First, not all bonds are created equal, right? There's different types of bonds. There's short-term bonds. There's long-term bonds. Short-term bonds will often do better than long-term bonds when we're in a rising interest rate environment like we are now. So it's important to be diversified among your bonds as well. So maybe having some short-term bonds could be beneficial. Uh, now, secondly, volatility is all relative. So you just mentioned the bond market's down about 5% year-to-date. That's bad for bonds. There's no question about it. But Steve, that's just a couple of bad days for stocks, right? You could have back-to-back right. -back days where the stock market is down 5%. So sure. volatility is relative. And the last thing that I want to point out is when you look at the long-term bonds specifically, their interest rates are really connected with broad economic growth. So should we start to see recession risk rise or the economy more likely to slow down to some degree? That's when long-term bonds will likely post some pretty positive returns because bond prices and interest rates move in opposite directions. So if interest rates go down because economic growth is expected to slow, that's when bonds will really shine. So if you're trying to time when that's going to happen, well, that's really, really tough. I think that's almost a fool's errand. Great insights. As always, Andy, here's a Simply Money point. While we can bank on the Fed making multiple interest rate hikes this year, as of now, we still believe recession risk remains low. So is there a correlation between what you're wearing and your productivity at work and how the pandemic has flipped a huge misconception on its head? That's next. And stock pickers watching the boat go by once again. That's in three minutes. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. If you can't listen to Simply Money every night, subscribe to our weekly podcast. It's the best of Simply Money. You'll find it on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. So if you're in your 50s and you haven't thought about maybe retirement planning until recently, is your whole future in jeopardy? Well, absolutely not. We're going to show you how you can quickly kickstart your retirement engine. That's at 643. Is there a correlation between what you wear if you're working at home and your actual productivity? Depends on who you ask. I would say no. <laughs> I, I, I think it depends on how old a person is that you ask, too. <laughs> that might, that yeah. might be the difference. So yeah. you, you think about it. There was a, a, a common work uniform, and we all adhered to it for years and years and years and years. And then, of course, this pandemic happened. Everything got shifted upside down, right. and we started working from home. And I don't know, Steve. Like I know you only worked from home a short amount of time, but during right. that time, did you still do the button down and the khakis you every know, day? It, it, was, it was interesting. I, I actually, I, well, I didn't put a tie on, but I dressed like I was going into the office, <laughs> and, and that lasted about a day. Yeah. You know, and and that's I'll tell you what really disturbs me. This study says people are more productive by not getting dressed up. But I, I don't know. I I mean, I, I'm going to go on an old guy rant because I was at an eye doctor, uh, eye doctor's office last week. And a guy walked in wearing a ratty T-shirt, ratty, ill-fitting sweatpants and shower slippers. And he's in a professional environment here. And I'm like, what's going on? Is this yeah. world, are, are people just turning into slobs? Yeah. You know? And, well, and Zoom, at least from the waist up, you have to still dress up for work with a Zoom call. 
Yeah, well, that's true, but only, I mean, I've seen people stand up during Zoom calls because, like, the cat's in the background or something, and they'll be wearing, like, a blazer and a button-down, and then they've got, like, shorts, shorts on. Yeah. Like, yeah. running shorts yeah. on. And actually, it just makes me giggle. Um, but this is actually some research that was done. It just found, like, hey, for those of you who are going into the office, you're actually spending more time getting ready, and it's not significant. 28 minutes versus 19 minutes for those who are working from home. Um but on the flip side, that same research shows that most people say you feel more authentic and more engaged if you can be in sweatpants and a sweatshirt or whatever <laughs> it is that you feel more comfortable in at home. And I will say, um, you know, I used to tell my kids all the time, hey, guys, like jeans are not dressing up. Me asking you to put on a pair of jeans is not an uncomfortable thing. And now I'm at the you're, point. You're entering my world. I, Listen now, to you. Yeah. Now I'm at the point where I'm like. Oh, I have to put jeans on today. <laughs> I get dressed up in the morning. I do my Fox 19 stuff in the basement. And then usually by the time you and I connect late in the day for the radio show, I am all on in the sweats and I feel very comfortable doing it. Is that right? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I still, I, I, if I'm going to be professional, I want to dress professional. That's just old guy Steve talking. It works, right? I think it's whatever works for you. And I wouldn't be yeah. surprised if maybe there was a kind of just an age differential that we all kind of fall on depending on, you know, where we fall on this. All right. Switching topics now. If you looked at your portfolio over the past year, not not the, not necessarily the past few months, but before that, you probably felt pretty good about yourself. Um, but if you were picking individual stocks, you have to ask yourself, how would I have done if I had invested in an index, right? An exchange-traded yeah. fund instead. Because, of course, you've got options out there on what you invest in. And there's mutual funds, there's exchange-traded funds, and those people, those high-powered, high-paid people that get to pick the stuff in the mutual funds, eh, they didn't do so great last year. L listen, let me ask you this. If I told you I had a strategy that beat the best actively managed funds for 12 consecutive years. Would Sign you me up. Would you listen? And, yeah. and then if I told you, oh, and it's cheaper than those actively managed funds are charging, now you're really paying attention, right? Absolutely. Well, that's what index funds have done. <laughs> yeah. I, and, and, you know, everybody in the world says, well, that's boring. S&P 500, you know, these various stock indexes, bond indexes. No, get somebody who's a good stock picker. Well, yeah, in a rising market, in a strong market, everybody's a genius. But the numbers don't lie, Amy. I mean, yeah. 12 consecutive years, just plain old index funds have outperformed 85% of the actively managed funds out there. That's incredible. And what these stock pickers do, right, and they do get paid a lot oh, of money. Ton. I mean, yeah. if you look at what the, I'm not talking about, like just a six figure salary, like oh, $150,000, no, no. no. which is amazing. We're talking way above that. And that's why fees are higher in these mutual yeah. funds, because they're doing research, right? They've got a team of people. They're actively picking stocks they're actively trading. And what they try to do then is to tilt their fund toward one part of the market that they think in their research, right, is going to outperform others. Here's the problem, though. Last year, 64% um, of the total return of the S&P 500 came from five companies, right? Who would yeah. have guessed that? Yeah. Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft, sucks. NVIDIA, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. So you have to be, it's almost like winning the lottery. Like you can do all the research in the world, right. but you just don't know. There's so many factors outside of anyone's control that kind of move the needle on these things. Yeah, and, and tech stocks might have made the most last year, but get, guess what's getting beaten up the most this year? You know, what goes up comes down. So just don't get wrapped up in last year's biggest score or anything like that. Consistency wins.
Here's the Simply Money point. A 12th straight year of watching the ship pass by is why we're big fans of ETFs over mutual funds. Lower fees because you're not paying one of these super high-paid managers to make picks. And if you know someone whose medical debt is ruining their credit score, we've got big news. We'll talk about that next. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. You know, when you look at bankruptcies every year, usually the number one factor that drives someone into bankruptcy is medical bills, right? Unpaid medical bills. Because for anyone who has just dealt with something like this, it knocks the wind out of you. But we have some good news tonight, straight from Ted Rossman, who's the senior industry analyst at Bankrate.com. Um, Ted, you're saying that now, um, while someone might be dealing with medical bills and going to collections and things like that, it won't necessarily impact their credit score. That's right. The three major credit bureaus just announced some big changes with medical debt. One is that paid medical collections will no longer count against you. So that's a big change, especially on older credit scoring systems like those favored by federally backed mortgage lenders. That ding used to stick with you for up to seven years. So paid collections going away is a big deal. Also, medical collections need to have been in collections for at least a year moving forward to hurt your credit score. So that's another good change. That longer time period reflects how complex insurance can be, and it can be very time consuming. So good news there. And then the third thing is that medical debts below $500 will no longer appear on credit reports. And that's also signifying that a lot of people were dragged down by maybe a one-off relatively small bill, like maybe they thought insurance paid it or they moved and they didn't get the letter. Uh, something like that actually happened to me once. Uh, but nonetheless, really three positive changes here. Well, and Ted, if you think about it, you just mentioned some examples where maybe it wasn't such a big deal. But for some people, um, you know, they have had great credit all their lives, but just a diagnosis, right, kind of knocks them off of their feet. And I've seen how some of these bills can absolutely pile up. And so they get behind. And then not only are they behind dealing with whatever it's hitting them, um, but at the same time, they're dealing with the financial impact of that. And when we're talking about a credit score. That impact could be for years and years to come. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think somebody who has an otherwise pristine credit score, they may lose 100 points because of some kind of delinquent medical debt. So this is really positive news that these paid collections are coming off and that there's a longer time frame to sort things out with insurance and that small amounts won't hurt you as much. I mean, the CFPB says that 43 million Americans have medical debt. It totals $88 billion. So that works out to an average of about $2,000 a person. Like wow. you were saying, though, there's a big range. I mean, some people have, sadly, astronomical amounts, um, but the median is about 500 bucks. So it actually goes to show that for many people, it's a relatively small amount, maybe an insurance mix-up. Uh, the Wall Street Journal says about 70% of medical debt will come off of credit reports with these three changes. So I think come summer, when the first two new rules take effect. Uh, the third, the, the under $500 thing, that doesn't take effect until next year. But okay. this summer, when the first two are implemented, that could add a lot of points to a lot of people's credit scores. 
You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC. We're joined by Ted Rossman, Senior Industry Analyst for Bankrate, with some great news for anyone who has um, just had issues paying off medical bills. The the major three credit bureaus saying, um, unless you have been dealing with this credit, with this debt for over a year, right, You you it should not impact your credit score. And then I want to get into how people usually pay for these medical bills, um, because I've seen people put it on credit cards. Um, and then, of course, the interest rates on those are astronomical. And what I guess frustrates me is many people don't start with the best place where I think to start with, which would be negotiating. This is a really important point because we're talking about positive changes to credit scoring, but it doesn't make the debt go away. You still have to pay this money, even if it's treated differently on your credit report. So yes, I would say negotiating with the doctor or hospital is a great first step. A lot of times they will work with you on a low, possibly zero interest plan. You could get that for a few years and really spread out the payments. It doesn't hurt to ask. A credit card would be a much worse option because the interest rate is very high, averaging over 16%. And then it's not medical debt anymore. It's credit card debt. So these improvements won't help you. You'll be dinged on your credit score if you have a lot of debt. I would definitely say start with that negotiation. Maybe a suitable plan B could be a personal loan or maybe seeking nonprofit credit counseling. Um, Credit card's the last resort. And so I'm wondering uh, what advice you give people because, you know, when you're in a situation where you've had a diagnosis and maybe the doctor's telling you, go get this test to go get that test, I think it... uh, Historically, many of us have just gone wherever the doctor has said, but research shows that if you do a little research on your own, uh, there might be a cheaper place to have that test done or that procedure done. Um, And so you almost have to become an advocate and a researcher for yourself. That's another good tip. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, sometimes we're not just patients. We're also consumers. consumers. And, you know, it is important to get that best deal. You don't necessarily think about shopping around for a surgery like you might for some kind of retail good. Um, But it is definitely a really strong point that prices vary. You talk about in-network, out-of-network. It is definitely a really good idea if you can, if it's something more elective, to really figure out where you're going to get the best deal. I suppose another part of the negotiation could be sometimes if you pay up front, if you pay with cash, you know, and that could maybe include a check as well. I'm, I'm thinking something that's not going to incur a, a 3% processing fee like a credit card. Yeah. You know, maybe you get a little bit of a discount there. Uh, the common theme, it doesn't hurt to ask. Yes, right. So do your research. Um, and then just what do you think the big takeaway should be for anyone dealing with these bills right now? We still want to make paying them off a priority, even if they're going to be viewed more favorably by the credit bureaus especially the fact that paid collections are coming off, that's really a strong incentive to pay it um, because unpaid collections will continue to hurt you as long as they're at least a year old and at least $500. Um, So medical debt's a big issue. It leads to a lot of bankruptcies. It leads to a lot of credit card debt. But you do have some options, and chief among them, I think, would be trying to negotiate directly with that provider.
Yes. So negotiating, doing your research, trying, if at all possible, to keep this debt off of your credit cards. There are currently 43 million Americans who have $88 billion worth of medical debt on your credit reports, right? That will be much better starting, you mentioned Ted Rossman, this summer. Great insights, though, on how to navigate that and the good news coming from those credit bureaus. Tonight from Ted Rossman, he's a senior industry analyst from Bankrate. You've been listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. Daylight savings time could be here to stay. So could that boost the economy? We'll investigate that straight ahead. You know, Steve, you, you've met, you've helped so many people. You've met with people. You've helped them kind of cross that road into retiring so many times. When is it that you kind of feel like people just really get serious about thinking about it? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting that by the time they sit down with a person like me, they're they're starting to feel it's crunch time. And sometimes that age is 45, but sometimes it's, well, I want to retire this year, and I, I figure I should start addressing it. Oh. Well, how much can you fix? It? <laughs> if I have bad news for you, what can you fix if you want to retire in the next year? Yes. You know, but, you know, th- this is this is me. I, I did some late in life investing. We had kids right off the bat. We got married fairly uh, fairly young. And, and you know, um, my business is not an easy business to get started in. So, you know, we're, we're um, Ann and I are some of those catch-up types of people. So I, I sympathize and empathize with anybody who's doing some later in life catching up. But I'll tell you what, once you get a financial plan drawn up, if you need to do some catching up, there are ways to go about it. It can be done. And I think that's, yeah. a, that's a very important point to make because there's some people who just throw up their hands and I haven't done it now, so I'm just going to work forever. No, it doesn't have to be that. So yeah. one of the options that you have, and I always get annoyed with Congress because I'm like, why? We, we know there's a retirement crisis, crisis here in this country. Why are we putting such low limits on how much people can put into these retirement accounts? Exactly. I never understand that. But one of the kind of gifts that you do get if you are at least to the age of 50 is the ability to put more money into those accounts. It's called a catch-up contribution. Yeah, big deal. An extra thousand bucks in an IRA. Is that <laughs> seriously? Is that really going to make a difference? But I'll, I'll tell you what you can do, and a lot of people don't don't realize this is you might have a four hundred one k, and maybe you've already maxed it out, and you know you don't make that much, so maxing it out is not a, a necessarily a big number. You can still put money into an IRA, a traditional or Roth. Sure. Within certain income guidelines. That'll determine the deductibility in a traditional. Um, check the rules. Check with the tax accountant. But you know, they're, they're not just catch up, but also an IRA in addition to a four hundred one k. These are these are tools you can use. Well, and you mentioned a thousand dollars, right? That's the only catch up contribution you make in the the IRA. But a four hundred one k is oh, sixty five hundred dollars. Yeah. And I mean, you're right. I think there's a lot of people who can't do that. But listen, if you're in a place where you're in your fifties and you do want to retire at some point, if you're saying sixty five or whatever that age is for you, you might have to look at your budget and start making some sacrifices in yeah. order to max out as much as you possibly can put aside. And also, the longer that money's in there, of course, the more it has a chance to grow. So you have to prioritize saving for retirement now over everything else. Yeah, but don't don't just assume you're in really bad shape without, you know, you, you still should get a financial plan drawn yes, up to find out where the numbers are. Because I, I have actually done some plans, especially the really good savers out there. Okay, they know they're behind, um, but they want to have a plan to, to find out how far behind. And after we really dive into it, 
they're actually not in bad shape. And in some cases, their retirement savings is right on track. So, you know, that that's the value of get get the data, get the data before you just assume things are really bad. Yeah, maybe it is bad, but maybe you only have to save an extra couple thousand years or put off a couple thousand dollars a year or put off retirement for maybe just one more year um, to make it work. And once you get that information, then you can start putting a strategy of, okay, here are the steps I need to take and I can then make it work and not go into a retirement decision with a ton of anxiety. Well, I think you just made a great point too, right? You might have to put off retiring another year or two, but the deal is you have to run the plan because, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, at the age of 50, I wanted to retire at 60, but the numbers look much better if we wait until, um, you know, 62 or 63 or 65 was the age and you wait until 67, whatever that looks like. It's better to know that then. But what if you were 64, planning on retiring at 65, then you run the numbers and they don't work out? That's a huge smack in the face. Yeah, but but in knowing what the equation is is part of the battle because sure. you know if you just you know blindly go into a retirement decision, I guess I got to work forever. You're not in a good mood, you know, and it might not be that bad. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you, there there are some other things you can do, and I know one of the favorites is, is or one of my favorites is something that you've proposed a number of times: health savings accounts. Not usually thought of as a retirement uh, savings account. But it can be used that way. Well, and that's exactly how I use mine. And I think the closer you get to retirement, if you think about the fact that the kids are maybe out of the house, they could be off of your health insurance, right? You have to have a high deductible health you're, insurance You're dreaming plan. again, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> Assuming that your children ever leave the house, ever yeah. fly the coop, and they're off of your insurance, um, if there's no kind of chronic situations that maybe you and your spouse have, a high deductible health care plan can work out great. Um, Jason and I do this, and we've got four kids on our plan, um, but no one has any chronic conditions. Most yeah. Everyone's mostly healthy. We have money set aside that we pay these bills for as they come up. And then we push that money forward um, toward retirement, knowing that health care will be a huge expense for us in retirement, just like it is for everyone else. And we want to have a plan for that. The key, of course, is the HSA isn't in just savings. That that, that uh, money in the HSA is invested so that it can grow more. Yeah. And, and, and I like to talk a little bit about what not to do, because there, there are some bad suggestions out there. Sure. I, I, I was reading, well, take out a home equity line of credit. If your house is paid off, take out a a home equity line of credit and start investing that money. No, please don't. What do you think about that? Well, I agree. And I think Nathan yeah. used to always say it's the it's the um, theory of perfection versus the mess of reality, right? right? And how many people have tapped into the equity of their home, said they're going to use it to invest, the market goes south, or they don't even really put it where they said they were going they to when something. they go on vacation or they yeah. do whatever. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you don't have the equity in the house and you don't have the savings either. That's what I definitely agree with you can totally backfire. Here's a simply money point. Just because you've waited to tackle retirement planning doesn't mean your future is in trouble. There's a number of ways you can jump in. You have to kickstart your plan by getting a plan in the first place. So would you like it lighter outside later, maybe all year long? This is a huge debate, right? They're talking about it in Congress. We're talking about it on the show. And apparently some say it could help the economy. We'll talk about that. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Strovak. Steve, America is divided on daylight savings time. Congress isn't, right? So this just passed, keeping daylight savings time year-round. I think just passed unanimously in the Senate. They're looking at that, making it a permanent change starting in November of 2023. So next year, 
Um, and we just even got in a big debate about it earlier today yeah. when we were talking about it with producers. I, I, I know. I, I mean, obviously, they've solved all the world's problems. You know, the war. <laughs> yes. And, nothing know, nothing bad is going on prices. out there. So Social we, security yeah. system isn't going so, bankrupt. <laughs> so since we've solved all those problems, let's tackle daylight savings time and quit changing clocks. Okay. All right. You're going to quit changing. They even screwed that up, in my opinion, at least. They they want to they want to change it so that it's daylight savings all the time. So you've got school age kids. That means your kids are gonna go to school in the dark. This is not, to me. They got it backwards. They'll leave it at, at standard time, not daylight savings. Okay, I, I'm I with totally, that completely. Well, I totally disagree with you because, I, and maybe this is because I I carpool every day to school, so my kids are gonna get a ride to school any day. They're not. Okay. And I get for those who probably have kids at the bus stops, but like it's fine for my kids to get up. They 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 hate hauling their butts out of bed anyway. You think it doesn't they, matter. they'd rather come home in, in daylight? Yes. Yes. I okay. think I would rather, once work is done, have time to take the dog for a walk, uh, be outside, let the kids play outside. When it's dark out and it's cold out, I just want to get in the fetal position. I get nothing done. So, uh, so, <laughs> so it's all about you. That, that's is. what we're talking um, about. It, it okay. ultimately all comes back as to that, As long as we're clear. As long <laughs> as we're clear. But you know that Congress did this before. In 1973, they, they did the exact same thing it lasted two years and there were some unfortunate accidents kids with uh, getting on school buses and darkness and all that kind of stuff and two years later they said that was a bad idea let's go back to the way it was and change clocks in the fall and the spring so i we're we're you know doing it over again yeah you know and and is it going to be any different this time i guess i just don't get i wish they would i wish they would take their time and address some more uh, important topics Gas pressing, prices? pressing issues. You think? Well, yeah. but here's where they say they say, "Hey, this will be good for the economy, sure, right?" Sure, sure. So everyone can sign on if something's good for the economy. They also it, said Obamacare was going to save twenty five hundred dollars a person. They got that wrong, I yeah. guess. But yeah, come on, you know, they, they get things uh, wrong. Yeah. every once in a while, or way more often than that. But here's what they're saying: economists are saying. This will be a boost for restaurants that and I do get this because, like I just said, I get in a fetal position when it's cold and dark out. I don't want to go out. Um, so if it's if it's light out and it's, you know, seven o'clock at night, you're more you're more likely maybe to go out to a restaurant sure. versus not go. I do see that. Um, and they're saying that DoorDash drivers, which I don't see that. I don't care if a DoorDash driver is is bringing me food in the dark or the light. That doesn't <laughs> matter to me. I'm still going to order that. They also talked about energy savings. And I think that's interesting. Yeah. And. And, and that's where this came from originally. If you go back to its its uh, beginnings during World War One, it was to save money in, in fuel prices and energy. So I think that's really what's driving it. But I, I, I would love to see a study that proves that. I, I, I don't think it exists. I would say the biggest benefit here is what you touched on earlier, Steve. People don't like changing their clocks. And I yep. will say, yep. I remember when my kids were babies, it is horrible trying to get a child just to, <laughs> hey, it's it's five o'clock in the morning now, not six o'clock in the morning, like getting them to sort of reset their schedules. I get that. But there's no concrete data on any of this. So uh, stay tuned. You've been listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC. We are the talk station.